I'm Josh Davey. And I'm Alex Dunning. And we're the hosts of the Go Find Yourself podcast. A podcast created to inspire and unpack candid conversations with the best entrepreneurs, investors, and leaders in their field right now. Powered by Cedars, we're the UK's number one online private equity marketplace, helping groundbreaking startups from around the world receive the funding they need to take their business to the next level. Stick around as we bring you weekly episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love the podcast, don't forget to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We really like it. Hello, everybody. Oh, you didn't let me do my big oh, my big entrance. Sorry, no, go for it. Go find yourself episode three. Hello, everybody. How are you doing today? Who are you talking to? I'm talking to the fundies. Great. Hello, everybody. Um, Josh here. Um, today, we have a pretty cool episode um, with Reshma, founder of Seed Camp. For those who um, are kind of familiar with venture capital and, and seed investing in Europe, you will, of course, know who she is and who Seed Camp are. But for those who don't, you are in for an absolute treat. Yeah, Seed Camp are one of the most, if not the most, influential seed investors in Europe. Backed over 300 businesses, and including early stage rounds for the likes of Wise, previously TransferWise, Revolut, Hopin, you know, really on a roll. And I think given the sort of early stage that they invest at and given the businesses that they backed, Seedcamp are one of the most influential funds in Europe. And you know, by association, Reshma, the co-founder, is possibly one of the most influential people in European tech. Yeah, absolutely. I managed to sort of, uh, well, we sort of met Reshma once or twice sort of in the office because Seed Camp and Cedars have done a lot of work together in the past. But kind of getting to spend some time with Reshma, really get to kind of ask some great questions um, around sort of how Seed Camp gets built, how Seed Camp really helps some of the best companies in Europe kind of grow and thrive super super exciting and super interesting for me personally Um, and Rashford certainly does not shy away giving some great fundraising advice for any of the founders who are listening out there so definitely stay tuned listen to the whole episode Rashma is on cracking form throughout um, and I'm sure everyone is going to absolutely love this oh and don't forget as always you if you enjoy the podcast please leave us a five-star review why should they leave us a five-star review Alex Oh, because we're bringing premium content directly into their ears every week for free. And for those who the premium content doesn't quite cut it for, there is also a financial incentive or the promise of winning a financial incentive. Uh, If you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and sign up to Cedars at cedars.com forward slash sign up, you are in with a chance of winning investment credit to spend on an investment in a fine startup available at cedars.com. So remember, leave a five-star review, but before you do, listen to the whole episode featuring Reshma Zahoni of Seed Camp fame over to, well, over to me. Hey, Reshma, thank you very much for joining us. I think it would be useful for, for us and for the audience as well who might not be familiar with Seed Camp to, in your own words, just sort of describe what is Seed Camp, what does it do, and, and, and why, why does it exist, really? Sure. Pleasure to be here. Um, so thank you. So at Seed Camp, we are a early stage Europe-wide VC fund or a seed stage fund, and we began life about 11 years ago as something different, which we'll talk a little bit about. But we do focus on anything that, that technology-related in terms of investing, so anything 
where the, in, the internet gives you a distribution or, or some kind of a tech edge um, or a product edge. And we do cover the European footprint, sort of Israel, West, Nordic, South. And a little bit here and there, we have invested in Asia, US, South Africa. So um, where it makes sense to do so, we'll, we'll do that. And we've backed over about 300 companies now. So we are a very high volume investor as well. Yeah, I think you mentioned it there, you know, sort of 11 years ago, 2007, very different origins in terms of starting life as this sort of accelerator. What was the reason for that switch? And I guess, how has that strategy changed over time? I think anyone out there building businesses, you know, everything is an evolution. And so we started 11 years ago or so with the kind of market needs at the time. And uh, founders across Europe didn't have a voice in the kind of mass market. And so we, we created Seedcamp to really help those folks, especially first time founders. And I think in terms of, you know, how you stay hungry and stay alive yourselves as an organization, you do need to evolve. And I think it's a combination of you try to see the future a little bit early, not too early, because then you'll flame out as, as well, but a little bit early, and you react as well. And so I think you know, for, for us as a team, we always had a vision to have this be a, a, a long-term organization. And so that evolution you know, in terms of seeing the future was we knew what we were building was going to sort of take off right, in, in the sort of optimistic future and that the needs would change. And so we would need to evolve and stay in line with those. And then I think some of it's been reaction to uh, seeing our alumni and some of our mentors come and say, well, we'd love to take money from you but that package you had you know 10 years ago isn't isn't relevant right and so so there's a bit of that sort of proactive and reactive oh yeah i was going to say it sounds quite intentional but also quite you know kind of go with the flow did you i guess lose faith with that sort of accelerator type model at all because obviously probably when you started one of the only players in the space and obviously there's a lot of people doing that sort of model now or was that just as you say kind of reacting to what you felt your portfolio companies needed more Again, I think probably a bit of both, right? I think that's a it's a hard question. That's what which, which makes it a good question. And uh, so I think a little bit, yes. Is and and you get, you know, your people at the end of the day, and you're tired of doing the same things over and over again as as well. So I think you evolve partly to fulfill your own kind of curiosity. And so and I think as as with markets and entrepreneurs out there building, you know, new disruptive businesses, is when it's attractive, people flood in. And I think we we help prove that kind of that accelerator world and helping young and, and new founders wasn't attractive space. And so, you know, hundreds of accelerators, incubators sort of flooded the market. And uh, so seeing that, we sort of said, well, well, it's our role to sort of move on and, and, and move away from that. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I guess when you started as well, the ecosystem is probably very different. Probably post-crash, did that have anything to do with kind of the strategy in the beginning and kind of were you responding to what was happening in the wider economy or is it just a sort of we're going to serve founders and what they need? Yeah, I think definitely. I think with the crash, you know, the opportunity cost um, suddenly dropped of, of starting up a business because there there wasn't such great opportunity, especially for, you know, financial founders or uh, or technical founders as, as well. Though jobs in the city you're consulting were, were fewer and far between. And so, you know, you, you have therefore that opportunity to jump in and take those risks. And so I think we've, we felt that there was enough of a market to serve and uh, and build a product that that met their needs just like any of the kind of products we see out there yeah i like that the opportunity cost of starting a business that's really interesting way 
I'd like to go back to, you mentioned a sort of sense of personal evolution. And, and when we spoke to Jeff Lynn on the previous episode, he was talking about the sort of entrepreneur story and almost starting seeders to scratch a sort of personal itch. Could you sort of give us a little bit of background in terms of your own sort of entrepreneurial story, sort of starting seed camp, what came before, what influenced you? Yeah, a- absolutely. And it's uh, <laughs> it's funny, right? And because uh, I'm not a, I, I would say I'm a natural entrepreneur or founder. I was an immigrant multiple times over. And I think when you are that, you're just trying to get into the system and to break into the system. So I definitely played the straight and narrow. You know, went to an Ivy League school, got an investment banking job after, you worked at Vodafone a few years later after that. And so very straight and narrow, right? But I think if you if you are an immigrant or, you know, I'm a minority, I'm, I'm a woman, I'll, I'll, and in a new country like the UK as, as well, you don't quite fit in and you're definitely bumping against the edges. And so for me, essentially, I kind of got fired. And uh, <laughs> so that was, you know, that was what led me to, to start seed camp is like look I don't fit in in maybe a very traditional sort of British British firm and uh, so if I want to make you know if I want to be part of a world which I, I like to live in then I have to kind of go out and make it and uh, and and so that's you know that's kind of how I built seed camp because I was just sort of pushing against those edges so much I decided that should be the way the business goes <laughs> rather than uh, it being a conflict all the time of course and and why Europe did you so obviously I think you spent some time in the States when you were sort of growing up and then obviously for your degree for the Ivy League why, why Europe in the end yeah so I mean I originally came to do my MBA at INSEAD in, in France and uh, at that time you know especially Europe was so closed off to getting any kind of a work visa or anything UK was definitely the only place so my plan was always just 10 months and head right back over to the US and, and continue but I think that sort of uh, underdog you know mentality and, and, and that kind of kicked in in me and I saw the talent talent across Europe and just incredible technical talent, great interest, a lot of industries that Europe, UK are dominant in. But in the tech age, that was going to be a challenge, right, to to continue that sort of leadership. And I saw founders who could address those problems with disruption and solution. And I thought, okay, well, I I would love to have that role to give them that edge and and help them and, you know, succeed. So to come back to, because again, you sort of touched on on the talent and and the the problems to be solved in, in Europe. Obviously now Seedcamp is is huge. It's one of the, it's, it, when you talk about sort of seed investors, it's especially where we work in, you know, in the space that, that we're in, Seedcamp is sort of the number one, right? Now that you're at that stage and you are the biggest and you are sort of the best, what approach do you take to deal sourcing? Do you, are you able to sort of just wait, sit back and say, we're Seedcamp, the talent comes to us? Or do you still take a bit of a proactive approach in, in actually going out and finding and nurturing Great question. I mean, I think, you know, if you want to be sort of lazy about it, absolutely, you can sit back when you've built a brand like this. And, you know, people will come to you and, and especially kind of a pre-stage process. We have an application online and, and entrepreneurs the world over can fill that out. So I think, yes, we can definitely take the lazy approach. But no, you know, as we've matured, the ecosystem has matured, founders have matured. And so, you know, it's a, it's a competitive deal at any stage. And the best founders will get picked up by those who are hungry and, and those are, you know, those who are are driving for for their business and so as we think of them as customers you know we are really out there and we cover such a massive footprint given it's Europe and we're sort of multi-industry multi-sector so we 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 do have to hustle all the time and and cover a lot of ground and I would say a lot more ground than later stage investors actually because once you know your series a series b your funnel has narrowed so much because only such few companies come through that funnel whereas for us I mean everything's the world's our oyster stir and so you have to stay stay hungry otherwise you're not going to get into the best businesses 
So is, is the hunger that how you how you sort of actively sort of maintain that that quality? Because I guess it's one of those you know like you mentioned it's sort of sector agnostic. You're across the like you said the world is literally your oyster. We have a sort of similar thing. It's either thing we do an okay job at, at sort of managing um, a certain level of, of quality across the board. How, is there any sort of you know f- from an investor point of view? How do you go about sort of maintaining quality? Yeah, and I think that the nature of that has changed a lot. So I think we pattern ourselves looking at Facebook and Amazon and Google. How do they deliver products to to their customers? How did they build out a platform versus thinking about how does private equity run or how did older VC funds funds run? And so when we look at that platform approach, we think about a lot about, um, again, product market fit. You know, is our product constantly in in the market that we're trying to serve? Does it fit their needs? Also, how can you get high engagement? I mean, there's, you know, as we know with Facebook, there's the flip side of high engagement, but uh, how do you get your, your customers really engaged with your product and then becomes a platform? And so a lot of the things we've built in in thinking about how do we get the best deals and how do we help our companies succeed, you know, at its core has a lot of those sort of platform elements. And so we look to these technology companies as kind of our peers and our guiding light versus, you know, more traditional financial models, which is a very different way of building a, a fund than you've traditionally had. And I think maybe a slight step change, but thinking about sort of the other side of the table, as it were, you know, because obviously you're in a position where you're investing into hundreds of companies, but also you've got your own limited partners. And what does that flip side look like in terms of getting the right investors, both for yourselves as a fund, but also when kind of what advice do you give to your portfolio companies when they're kind of looking for maybe later stage funding or co-investment yeah. or whatever it is? Yeah, and it's, it's really contextual. And I think there's absolutely a right fit of investors for your stage and, and, and right time as well. So I think, you know, again, sitting in, in your audience's shoes of probably a lot of people who are going to be doing startups is we got, we went a very different way in that we expanded our LP base massively. I think we have, I don't know, 100 plus LPs. And it comes with a lot of cons, right? <laughs> Which is just people management. And, and, it's, and it's tough. But that's the tough part of the medicine we chose to take with the pros, which are that you have 100 plus uh, people who are customers of our companies and who are investors who are going to fund them later on and, you know, who are, again, actively engaged with us and and helping us. And so we think a lot of points in our journey and our company's journeys of how can we get those folks involved. And so I think, you know, that that kind of an LP base or as an investor base is not right for every startup either. And I think that, you know, you definitely need a core group of your, uh, whether it's your board or your investors that are going to dedicate a lot of time, a lot of energy to you. And we've always had that with an advisory board we've had or, or a board that, that we've had. So we have a core group that spends a lot of their wallet of time and you know even money on, on us. And I encourage that for all entrepreneurs is find that. But beyond that, you know, we, we love Cedars and we love things like that because it, it does sort of bring your customer base into you as a as an investor and, and what a, you know, what a brilliant relationship there. Right. And and so and also given the volume of companies we invest in, about 30 companies a year, you know, portfolio of 300, it really helps to match kind of that big base at the bottom with actually a big base of investors at the top as well. You're, you can make more matches with, with just that kind of volume. And those big base of investors at the top, you know, a lot of your kind of LPs are sort of very well known later stage investors in in the startup ecosystem. Has that always been the case? Or is this a growing appetite to get those exposures to get that network to the sort of siege stage deals that, that are coming through? No, it's, it's actually always been the case. And it's 
definitely was our USP early on. And I don't think we covered it enough or talked about it enough, probably kept it, you know, secret for a reason, right? It, it, it did give us an advantage is that the kind of Atomicos and indexes and, and others were a founding part of SeedCamp. And so we've always had their wisdom and, and advice and their time and energy. And you can see it in the companies that get backed, you know, after us is, again, Balderton and, and others. Uh, there's a high proportion of our companies that get backed by tier one investors. And you see a correlation in the end result in terms of this, just the sheer size of companies you can build, you know, that sort of 1,500 person, 2,000 people company, that billion plus in valuation type of business that you can build with really kind of top quality investors. And yeah, we've just been fortunate that, you know, we, we purposefully built, yeah. those, uh, built those people into our investor base from an early standpoint. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's really interesting for us as well, because we see your most recent fund had participation from from portfolio founders, right? So at one end, you've got these big sort of later stage funds, but then at the other end, you've got you know, portfolio founders participating. What was, what was the reason for opening that up to them? There's the social reason of there, you know, you give back and you you pay forward. So I think that was just that's a no brainer. But uh, you know, add if if you can, you know, in a perfect world, you add the social elements with capitalism. And I think that's hopefully you know as we move to a healthier capitalist future as, as well. That's something we all keep in mind. And I think the capitalism end of it is well, these are successful founders, and in addition to paying it forward, you know, again, if they're monetarily tied in, they'll hopefully refer us quality entrepreneurs we can then back and also they will support them with with their business with recruiting with advice and and so on and so forth that it just keeps kind of creating this virtuous cycle with you know both a capitalist and a social element both intertwined in it and I think that's a real win-win yeah no I think you kind of hit the nail on the head of what we try to do as well when we open up Cedars sort of equity crowdfunding or whatever you what do you want to call it to, to sort of more members of the general public as well that you know group of people group of advocates who have a vested interest kind of really helps with that match up there and then and i think there's a time and a place for that so i don't want your audience to kind of you know run out as uh, as the as the first product they launch and say great i'm going to invite you know a hundred of my potential customers now to back me right and managing that or even getting those folks interested is just a, it's a fruitless exercise when you don't have a, a product people love in, in the market so i think it's very much about the right time and, and place for it and on that as well sort of the right time and place for fundraising you, you must get a lot of people coming to you where you maybe think oh, it's too early or it's too late to fundraise. When is that? I mean, I guess it depends on what kind of business, but you know, when generally, when is it the right time to sort of take money into the business? Yeah, it's a great question. I think founders definitely wait too late because look, it's not fun. It's not fun for us to fundraise for our fund every every few years. And it's certainly not for entrepreneurs who have to do it in an even more sort of active cycle. So, but there is, there is definitely the, the right time. And I think waiting anywhere kind of three months till you're burnt out or, or less is, is such very much the wrong time. It, it's wrong in power dynamics. It's wrong in your attitude in all those cases. So, I mean, we really say sort of close your funding and then within, you know, take that breather of a quarter probably. But right after that, start very informal conversations because you have nothing to you know prove and nothing to, to pitch at that point. And so build relationships because those next set of investors are probably different from the ones you just closed with. So they, those will be brand new relationships uh, to, to some extent. So open those up. And then I think, you know, anywhere sort of six, nine months before you, you, you're going to hit that wall, um, start to have those easy conversations first around fundraising, understand, and especially around understanding what are the milestones I need to prove 
to raise that next big round, to hire that next big group of people I need into my business and, and prove out those things. And you know, there's a lot, lot of questions like that. You, you won't get them answered well when you're against the wall running out of money to do that. It's just, it's really great for your product planning, team planning to do that well, you know, well in advance. So it should be an ongoing exercise as much as sort of as much a part of running a business as, 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 as sort of HR or, or product development. Yes. And it's a, and that's the great versus the good. Yeah. So anything, you know, every founder is like, but my product's so great. My business is so great. I should get money. Well, no, the great founders, you know, are, are sucking it up and kind of just being out there all the time. And I think, again, the right attitude will make it either a pleasurable experience or a very stressful one where yeah. you're sort of up against the wire with three weeks of run. Understood. And. So, so I guess that sort of timing of funding, what, what I think would be quite interesting to sort of deep dive into would be almost the type of, of funding. So I guess, and this is again something we, we discussed with Jeff Lynn was, you know, I think in the early days of Cedars and equity crowdfunding, there was a sort of assumption or accusation of, of crowd money being sort of dumb capital. And I think gradually as, as the, the industry's matured, that has sort of, you know, fallen away a little bit. But you've always, um, and Seacam has always sort of prided itself on delivering smart capital. And I, I, you know, my interpretation of that is it, is it goes beyond just the fact that you're Seacamp and you're investing some money. How do you define smart capital? And, and, and how does it play a part in a, in a, in a company's development? Yeah, and, and so the smart capital is, you know, integrally built into this platform that, that we built. And it's both an online and an offline platform. So online, we have a thriving community of these 300 founders who answer each other's questions on there and are helping each other out and part of smart capital is to say we as the as the VC partners do not want to be the bottleneck we shouldn't be the one everyone comes to to say what you know IP lawyer what do I do in terms of I'm faced with this issue with a team member and and you know, all of those can be answered by a peer community or, or mentor community and our job is to kind of get out of the bit way and build those toolkits that they can sort of self-apply so that's the online part and it works you know extremely well we're just we're so excited by how it continues to improve and the more quality and large number of companies you know we have in there it just yeah it's it's amazing um and how much that platform benefits from from it and then we do offline as well at the end of the day everyone's human and relationships need to be built otherwise you don't have long-term you know business it'll be very transactional and you can't get very far with that so we do a lot of kind of summits and lunches and dinners and, and things just to get people you know physically in a room and and talking to each other as, as well. So I think smart capital is both some of those value add services and you know help with recruiting or help with some of the teething issues early on in those first three to six months, um, help with that product product market fit part of your journey. All of that, it's a, it's a bit of us, it's a bit of the peer community, it's a bit of the network. And of course, I think core to, core to us, and it's a little bit self-serving, is that we know with a volume of 30 companies a year, we can't credibly say we're in this business every, you know, every week we're holding your hand for the next 12 months or five years is self-serving you know we want to get out as well well how, how do you want to get out in a good way is the more we can help our companies raise top tier investing the easier our job becomes to to step away and we're definitely relying on the governance and the and the support infrastructure of those those investors following on so how is CCAB structured from a sort of, I guess, operational point of view? Is there, are there sort of set teams who, who's, you know, there's one of them, you know, there's a team of sort of fundraising experts whose job it is to go and support the, the founders in that way. And then there's sort of almost a sort of HR and ops side of things. Is, is that how it works? No, we don't fragment it to that extent. It does have to be a very cohesive unit and we keep it very, very small. So one of the things we, we like to say to any of our new hires is, you know, you're going to be sort of CEO of your own domain 
you might not have any team under you, but you're, you're CEO of, of your yeah, own. Yes. <laughs> and so whether that's, you know, marketing, technology, talent, or, or, or whatnot, that said, that has to work very much, you know, cohesively with the, with the rest of the team as, as well. But we are four partners. And for us, that's that end-to-end job of everything from the sourcing to then the selection, which you hope, you know, you're good at and uh, only time tells. And then the support, which we, again, hope it makes a difference, right? I think in, in great companies, it's definitely been an additive, but those great founders do build amazing teams internally and they don't need you as much. And, and you know, you try to help the good to become great and it's hard with others. But yeah, so that that's our four, four member team. And then we have, as I said, heads of sort of tech marketing, um, the office kind of community and, and so forth. And then we have a pretty large group of experts in residence, venture partners as well, who still are quite close to us. And then this sort of larger mentor, you know, mentor community and investor community who do office hours and come to our various events and things. So a lot of touch points. And I think it's similar to what I said with the great entrepreneurs are fundraising 24-7 all the time, right? Alongside being amazing product people and, and amazing salespeople and so forth. And it's the same thing here is that we have to work on all those touch points all the time and you can't take a break from any of that. And because of that way of operating, that sort of, I think you called it startup economy before, that seed camp nation, did that evolve kind of organically out of just the way that you operate? Or is it something that you from the beginning were like, we want to do this to support the, the founders of our portfolio? No, and I, I mean, I, partly it evolved that way and then kind of light bulb went off in our heads relatively early on to anyone else. But I just don't think we had the volume early on because we were only investing in 10 companies a year, right? So it took time to see it all kind of that magic happen. So yeah, and I wish you know I could take credit first. Oh, I saw it <laughs> 10 years ago. But once it did, once you had that tipping point, I would say probably 50 to 75 companies, then you saw that magic of them sharing customers with each other against, you know, recruits and talent and then just issues that that they were all dealing with. So once we reached that, we identified it pretty quickly and then just kind of doubled down and and built that comprehensively. The network effects of just having 300 companies in your portfolio, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, look, YC does an incredible job of that. And that's why I think those who criticize them for how for them getting bigger and bigger will you know, this is the amazing flip side of that yeah. is that uh, you do have that economy within it. And uh, and yeah, you, you almost, you know, you have a currency there of trading services and products and advice and, and so forth. It's powerful. Yeah, you have this great economy of scale of just the bigger network you have officially or unofficially helps, right? And you just have to manage expectations, though, I think, within that, because, again, the great founders are greedy and, and want everything, from, you know, from you. And so you have to manage those expectations and then deliver accordingly or more, hopefully. So, so I think, as you mentioned, started off as an accelerator in 2007, and then you've sort of grown and become a fund and all these other things. And then all of a sudden, this sort of its own economy, the portfolio emerged. I mean, future growth, is it just sort of continue as you are now? Keep raising funds that get bigger, invest in more companies? Or do you see, is there any sort of big strategic changes that you see coming up on the horizon? You know, you're in this room and and you're asked to be here because you've focused so well on doing one thing, you know, really well and, and built a brand around that. Yet there are so many opportunities out there and you and you want to take those on. And so I think it'll be more partnership based. So one of the things, you know, we helped launch was something called Concrete VC, which is a prop tech fund and it, it and it does prop tech but globally, right? And it's very much its own brand, but done in partnership with us. And so I think those are the models that work for who we are as people, what you know, what our brand stands for, rather than purely taking sort of seed camp name and, you know, applying it to to a hundred different things. Again, that comes with there are some things we cannot 
do and we have to accept that. But, you know, those things we choose to do, we will hopefully continue applying our DNA and, and be very focused and do it at a, at a level of excellence, right? So yeah, so that's kind of our future and that's what we're, we're working on. I don't know if you can ever be sort of complacent and such a massive ego that you think, well, I've nailed early stage <laughs> venture and uh, I'm just so great at it, right? And the, so we're, we're not at that level. I hope we're never that arrogant. And so I think we continue to learn and there's new industries, you know, the whole sort of crypto space and, and AI and, and all that. And there's a whole new group of people working in it and whole new way of working on, on things and building companies and, and f- financing them as, as well. And so we're relearning, you know, a, f- a few things how to do in the next decade. So that keeps us pretty excited. I think it's the thing as well, just working in this industry, it's always evolving, right? So there's always just something new to play with. Well, I think very much the proactive versus reactive that you talked about you know, when we first arrived was continual iterations, right? Yeah, you better keep moving. So Boldson launched a, a liquidity fund. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? I love it. I mean, it's not a first in terms of, you know, there's others doing secondary and we sold uh, our portfolio to Draper. And so I love the marketing around her. It's brilliant. And uh, and I think it's innovative in the sense you're seeing a hardcore VC, you know, early mid-stage VC doing that. So that that's pretty exciting. I'm a big believer in liquidity. I come from a, a capitalist world in that sense and education as, as well. So I think everything that promotes the fast movement of, of money and gives optionality to both founders and early stage investors like us, angels, etc., is good and, and more is better. I love that move. I think I think it's great. And, you know, we're in companies like Revolut and a, and a few others with Balderton. And I think that's very exciting, right? Because yeah. if we wanted to sell or if some of the other shareholders that are in Revolut wanted to sell, here you go. You have a pretty easy path for that discussion. Because I think one of the one of the things on liquidity is as you go later stage, you know, knowledge is very trapped in organizations such as ours and it's siloed. And so I think, again, Cedars, you know, being a vehicle where you can invest all the way till, till late stage or, or things like this is you can start to unlock that knowledge. But knowing, you know, entities like a Balderton or, or others who will focus on this, they have similar knowledge to what you have about certain companies. And so it's not as much hard work to educate on certain companies or whatnot, and they know that business model. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's a brilliant move. Yeah. And do you think as more liquidity comes into the space that those the lines between the public markets and private markets will get a little bit more blurred in terms of, you know, the frequency of transactions? Absolutely. And I think, you know, Cedars is a, is a big factor in leading on that charge, right? And I, I guess the one thing we always have to be conscious of is, are we building this for to ride the big pop right now and the bull market right now? Or are we, you know, do we all still want to be around these tables uh, when the bear market does come and, and it will come, right? We can't, I don't know um, necessarily the timing of it, but uh, it will come. And do we want to be there during that and for the next bull run as, as well? So I think if we're doing that, then, you know, more is more in, in my view, but you need strong governance and and you need a strong sense of KPIs and understanding what really will enable these companies to to have longevity and and still be there in in 10, 20 years, like Amazon has even, you know, through its many unprofitable years, right? Um, But it's there and it's sort of turned that tide. So yes, I think governance, I'm seeing some loss of governance, too much exuberance. So that's worrying to me, but I don't know if we need to, again, be that lazy to lose it. So I think you need some sort of level of whether that's some regulatory help or or just self-policing. But yeah, I think if you, you can have more liquidity and really good uh, good governance, again, that, that becomes a win-win. You've been in the in the in the sort of seed stage, um, you know, sector for for over ten years now. Experience beyond that. 
What gives you the biggest cause for optimism about the next 10 years, both for Seacamp, but also just for the, the evolution of technology and society and, and, and things like that? Yeah, a few things. I mean, if, if you look at sort of Africa, Asia, you know, they're leapfrogging, you know, those multiple steps. And so their evolution is much faster on, on technology and how it can impact their day to day lives and, and how they can kind of, you know, get out of the, the poverty base that they're in and, and, and other topics like education and so forth as well. So that's extremely exciting and, you know, brings with it a lot of optimism. And just I think generally the access to knowledge is, is democratic and it's, you know, close to free, right? If you apply yourself. And I think many countries now are taking sort of policy initiatives to drive tech skills earlier on in education systems and all of that. So I think we're going to be a much smarter society for it and, you know, bilingual and sort of coding and, and English and, and, and other languages, obviously, as, as well. So that gives me extreme optimism. And particularly within tech, it just, again, allows you to hack things, you know, the way life shouldn't be. And it ha- allows you to hack into a life that works for you as an individual or as in society. And that's not going to change. And the adoption of that is just faster and faster. So that's just exciting, comes with its challenges. But, you know, if done well, yeah, it unlocks just a whole great future for you, right? So those are probably all the reasons. Reshma, thank you very much for, for joining us. Um, it's been really, really interesting. Yeah, thanks great. a lot. Thanks so much. Yeah, been great. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. As always, you can find out more about our guests in the podcast description or online at cedars.com forward slash go fund yourself, where you can also find this episode's transcript and other exclusive content. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, if you want to invest in some of the best and brightest startups in Europe, sign up at cedars.com forward slash sign up. See you next week.